0: Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, You are a Father who has supplied all our needs until this night, and You have emboldened us to come to You and pray that we may be wonderfully nourished this evening by Your presence and by Your Word and by the bread and the wine at the table. We pray that You would stimulate our hunger and our thirst for our Lord Jesus Christ and for His gospel. And we pray that where we recognize our hunger and our thirst, that we may find in Jesus Christ the bread of life and the water of life. And we ask that as You come to us and meet with us, as Your Spirit moves throughout this room and up and down the pews, that He will minister to us in ways that are profoundly personal, that He will bring to our memory and into our conscience those very aspects of our lives in which we so greatly need the grace of Your gospel. And we pray that as by Your Word we are pointed to Your Son, and as From your Son we receive the gifts of bread and wine tonight, that this may truly be an evening of wonderful communion with our Lord Jesus Christ that will equip us to serve Him and to honor His name in the rest of this week. So meet with us now we pray in and through your Word and by your Spirit for Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen. Well, this evening we turn again to Romans chapter 10, and we're reading there in our series in Romans these evenings. We've come to verse 5 to 13 of Romans chapter 10, and you'll find this passage in the Pew Bible. There is one in the Pew rack in front of you on page 946, and it will be helpful if you follow along there in the Word of God. Paul in these chapters has been expressing his deep concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he calls them in chapter 9 and verse 3. If it were possible, Paul would have wished himself accursed in order that they might be blessed. And he has told us at the beginning of chapter 10 why this is so, because his heart's desire and prayer is That they might be saved, which they evidently are not yet. And so, verse 4, he affirms that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord— and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, the same Lord as Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have been following the heartbroken Apostle Paul now for almost two months of this year in Romans chapters 9 and 10. And I think all of us would recognize that these chapters are by no means easy going. But of course, it takes a great deal to break our hearts. And the Apostle is speaking here, as we've seen on a number of occasions, out of a crying heart. He is a great theologian and he has demonstrated that to us in the opening chapters. But if there is anything in which he is greater, it is as a man of prayer and an evangelist. And he actually gives us an amazing illustration that understanding the gospel and having a passion for the gospel are not enemies of one another, but in its greatest exponent, They are the closest of friends, provided its exponent has a broken heart. And I suppose most of us would also recognize that that is one of the greatest lacks of the contemporary church. And I don't mean the contemporary liberal church that has abandoned the gospel, but the contemporary evangelical church it has become a rare thing to witness tears and prayers for the lost, indeed even tears and prayers for the lost we know, never mind the lost we do not know. And so when the apostle Paul speaks out of that deep pain of heart, we surely do well even if He brings us into deep places, we do well to follow Him so long as we are praying, break my heart too. And there is really no other way to understand these chapters. It's a very interesting thing personally to me that when people come and they complain about Paul's rigorous teaching on God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9, the simplest way is to puncture pride. Now, it's one thing to be struggling with the teaching. It's another thing to stand over the teaching and say, that's not right if God is sovereign like that. And the easiest thing to do to puncture that kind of pride is to ask this question, When? did you last weep from a broken heart for the salvation of another human being? And when you have been there, then you will begin to understand why this teaching on God's sovereignty is such a balm to your soul. And this is what Paul has been underlining, hasn't he? He has established in chapter 9 that although his kinsmen have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, the reason is not because God's Word has failed. And then you remember he goes on to say the reason is that they have rejected the gospel. Now, it's very important for us to understand that's how the Apostle Paul thinks. The apostle Paul is not saying the reason they are not saved is because they have not been elected. The reason they are condemned is not because they have not been predestined. The reason they have been condemned and are not saved is because they have not come to believe in Jesus Christ and undergirding. Everything that he's saying here is what he has said at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 when he's emphasized, we have no place on which to stand before God and to claim anything in ourselves. On which our salvation could be grounded. And therefore, we need to look to God's prevenient grace, God's electing mercy. Or there is no hope of any salvation for any individual because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he has brought this to a very important climax in what he says in chapter 10. And in verse 3, he says, yes, they have zeal, but their zeal is to establish their own righteousness before God. And he summarizes their true spiritual condition in three ways. First of all, they are ignorant of the gospel. Secondly, they claim independence of God's way of salvation. And thirdly, they manifest, and these three things always go together, they manifest a deep sense of insubordination before God, ignorance of the gospel, independence of God's way of salvation, and insubordination before God. They will not have God's way, he says, at the end of verse 3, and so they did not submit to God. God's righteousness. They insisted in doing it their way. But, says Paul, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for all those who believe. And last Sunday evening when we were thinking about that, because end can mean on the one hand finish or goal, on the other hand, and those two uh, those two meanings are not always too far away from one another. I suggested that in this passage, while it's true that Jesus is the goal to which the law was pointing, in this passage, Paul is saying. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, as I have done, that puts to an end any thought you have in your mind that the law might be the way of bringing you righteousness. And of course, in Philippians chapter 3, he goes over how this was true in his own experience. How there was a a time in his earlier life when, as far as the law was concerned, he considered himself absolutely blameless, as many people do. Not perfect, but absolutely blameless. Nobody could point their finger at him and say, Less than average individual, he's a failure. But then, you see, he said, I was seeking to establish my own righteousness. But now, he says, in Jesus Christ, I want to be found in him through faith, not having a righteousness of my own, abandoning any possibility that I can stand before God in a righteousness of my own to be found in Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that comes by God's grace to me in Jesus Christ. And now what he's doing in these verses that follow at which we're looking this evening is picking up this principle that Jesus Christ as the way of salvation ends attempting to keep the law as a way of salvation, and he begins to work this out in a an intricate, yes, but actually very marvelous way. And I want you to notice two things very quickly. The first is this. This is really before I begin. I want you to notice these two things. First of all, I want you to notice how tight his reasoning is. Now, remember this because uh, some of us kind of go a bit rigid when we come to something in which we've got to reason very carefully. Remember that many of the people to whom he's writing were slaves. So, this isn't being written to the postgraduate school in the University of Rome. This is being written to ordinary people because you don't need a graduate degree to think clearly. Don't let anybody ever deceive you about that. You do not need a graduate degree to think clearly. But look at the way Paul reasons. For, he says, you see, for, that's part of his argument. Moses writes this. And then do you notice in verse 10, he gets into it really tightly. He says, for with the heart one believes. And then verse 11, for the scripture says. Then verse 12, for there is no distinction. Verse 13, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord. You can see that uh, it's a bit like these Russian dolls or Chinese dolls where, you know, you open up what he says. And he says, now I want you to see there's something inside that that grounds it. And you need to read these verses again and again on your own, and I hope you are studying Romans on your own. You'll never get Romans just by listening to me, preacher, that's for sure, to follow through the power of his reasoning as he thinks the gospel through. But the other thing that is so fascinating to me is that as he does this, he just pours Bible into what he's saying. He pours Old Testament into what he's saying. Do you see how he does that? I wonder if any of you, when you were younger, did painting by numbers. You know, you got this thing, you were hopeless at painting as I was, And actually, to be honest, I was really hopeless at painting by numbers, but the theory was if all the bits were numbered and then all the colors were numbered, you could do a kind of Michelangelo by painting by numbers. And uh, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is painting by Scriptures. I wonder if you've ever been to see some of those Impressionist paintings in the Metropolitan Museum in New York. I used to despise those Impressionists because I thought they'd just made postcards that people sent to me. But then you go into these galleries and your eyes are almost pulled out of their sockets at the colors that are being used and the way the paint is on the canvas. Absolutely awe-inspiring. And Paul does something like that here with the Scriptures as virtually for the last time in this letter, and therefore probably for the last time in this series of expositions, he makes clear to us that the way of salvation has always and ever been by faith and not by works. And although there's a lot of Bible and reasoning in this, I think the Apostle Paul is essentially doing two things. First of all, in verses 5 through 9, he's dramatizing the gospel in a drama for two voices. And there are two voices you'll notice speak, the first in verse 5 and the second from verse 6 to 9. And then, having dramatized the gospel in this drama for two voices, he expounds the Scriptures to show us the way of salvation. And the marvelous thing about this, and I think we'll we'll come to see this more clearly. Actually, I have a friend who's been preaching through Romans backwards. Have I told you that? It's not a bad idea because by the time you get to later chapters in Romans, then you realize the extent to which he's, he's been giving you hints in earlier chapters of Romans. And he's about to deal with a situation that seems to involve Jewish Christian believers and Gentile Christian believers, and they're at loggerheads with one another. And of course, the people who are so critical of the Apostle Paul tend to be those Jewish background believers. And so he does an amazingly brilliant thing here. He says, let me for the last time speak the gospel to you in its simplest terms. And he goes back to the Old Testament Scriptures. You see, And he lets the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures, speak the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. So let's look just for a moment at this drama that he portrays in verses five through nine, this drama of the two voices which express the gospel message. Voice number one, he says, and here he alludes, although he doesn't quite cite Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, voice number one, which is the voice of Moses, says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The basic principle of law, of commandment, is do it and you will live. That's not something Paul makes up. That's something he gets out of the Old Testament Scriptures. And if you remember, that's the very thing that Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, now, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I do in order that I may live? And you remember what Jesus said to him. Jesus said to him, it's simple, my friend. Go and do the commandments and you will have eternal life. That's what the Bible teaches. If you go and do the commandments, you will have eternal life. And the foolish young man, you see, responded, this was the mistake. He responded by saying, thank you, sir, done that. Now what next? And Jesus began to press on him with that little commandment that apparently Jesus used also to press in upon the apostle Paul, as he says in Romans chapter 7. What about that commandment about covetousness? You've kept that too? Well, just go home, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. It's easy. Or is it? Or have you kept the commandments, and you see it becomes clear to them as it became clear to Paul, here I am, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus drops one of the commandments right down into the conscience, and he realizes he hasn't kept that commandment, and therefore he has broken all of the commandments, because he has coveted what other people have, and he has possessed for himself what he should have shared with others. So, Moses says, do this and live. But of course, and here's the trick, Moses knows nobody can do it. Moses says do this and live. And not just Moses says do this and live, the Lord Jesus says do this and live. But Jesus knows the rich young ruler can't do it either. Because, of course, since the fall, righteousness, holiness, godliness, faithfulness, obedience has never been energized by the unregenerate human heart, but only by the saving grace of God in his gospel. And actually, Paul had made that very clear earlier on in Romans chapter 4 as he makes it clear in Galatians chapter 3. He's saying, don't you understand that when Moses said, do this and live, Moses already knew that salvation couldn't possibly lie at the other end of my obedience because I am not obedient to the Lord, but must depend upon that promise of God's grace and salvation that He had given, as He says in Galatians chapter 3, 430 years before the law was given. So, voice one is the voice of Moses saying, if you want to be saved, if you want to have life, then keep the commandments, and you will live, and it's true. But nobody can ever accomplish it. And so, we immediately move on to listening to the second voice. Incidentally, that notion that you would be saved by doing, we sometimes think was an epidemic in the first century, is a pandemic in the twenty-first century. That's not something people do because they've been brought up in the Old Testament. That's something people do by nature, and it's the way to destruction. The Apostle Paul is saying, his heart is broken as he watches people doing this, just as when the rich young ruler went away sad, Jesus looking on him loved him, and it broke his heart that the boy was so foolish as to turn away from the convicting work of God's Holy Spirit. That's how Paul feels about his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so another voice speaks, and the second voice says something quite different, doesn't it? Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness that is based on faith, the saving faith that brings us a right relationship with God he says, it speaks in a completely different accent. Don't say in your heart, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, who will ascend into heaven? Let me get there under my own steam. He says that would be to bring Christ down from heaven as though he had never gone up to heaven for our salvation. Or who will descend into the abyss? Let me do something really difficult for my salvation. He says that would be to treat Christ as though He'd never died for our sins on the cross. But what does the Word say? The righteousness that's based on faith says you don't need to go far. You don't need to do much. The Word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And that's the Word of the gospel— salvation by faith that we proclaim because, he says, it's not a matter of working your way into the righteousness of God. It's a matter, he says, of in your heart believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. Now here's the genius in this. In verse 5, he says, Moses speaks this way about the righteousness that's based on the law. And he doesn't mention Moses' name, does he, in verse 6, but he quotes Moses. See, it's… it's, it's I can't tell you how clever this is. It doesn't seem so clever to us because we don't know Deuteronomy chapter 30 very well. But you see, if you'd been hearing this for the first time, and you'd been a a person who was very uncomfortable with what the Apostle Paul was saying, this is a judo throw he's got on you. Because you're saying, well, I'm with Moses. Moses who says, obey and you will live. I'm with Moses. And he's already shown us that while Moses says, do this and live, Moses knows that the only way to live is not by doing but by trusting in what God is doing, and then he slips in as though he… I don't know whether it's kindness towards his opponents or what it is, but he just kind of slips in these Scripture verses without rubbing their face in the dirt because the person who says that the only way of salvation is by receiving the word that is near you on our mouth and in our heart. It's Moses who says this. You see what he's saying? He is saying in a dramatic way what he's earlier said in a prosaic way. We are not saved by keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ and the law itself testifies to us that that's the only way in which we can be saved. It's as though He's saying to them, you're not listening to what Moses actually said. You don't need to work your way up to heaven. You don't need to work down into the abyss. It's near you. It's in your tongue. It's on your lips. It's a It's a simple matter of, of, as it were, opening your mouth and saying, as Duff James was saying, Lord, save me, help me, be my Savior, take my life, forgive my sins. And you're exhausting yourself trying to climb the mountain to heaven when heaven has come down the mountain in Jesus Christ and has come near to you and he says to you, Now, child, simply come and trust me. Nothing in your hands you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God. I come. It's the sheer simplicity of it, the sheer graciousness of it. Now, he says we've got that in place. He's been putting that in place again and again and again in Romans. And he's coming to a point in his exposition of the gospel where he sees, this is about the last time I can speak about this. You know, if you're a gospel minister in a congregation, you know that there are only so many times you can speak about something, or then you move from preaching and expounding into hectoring. And he understands that, but he's passionate about it. Do you understand the way of salvation? And having given the gospel message in these two voices, he now applies the gospel message in two ways. First of all, in verses 9 through 11, to underscore to us the absolute necessity of faith for salvation. Salvation is not a reward given to us at the end of the long struggle of our Christian lives but the gift that is given to us at the very beginning of our Christian lives as we come to Jesus Christ by faith. So many people are like Naaman, aren't they? Turns up at the prophet. He expects the prophet to do some amazing thing, to to speak in some amazing way, or to give him something really difficult to do. And the prophet says, just go and wash in the dirty river, and your leprosy will be cured. And Naaman is furious. I remember an older minister telling me when I was a student, he had arranged to meet a woman who was under great conviction of sin. And as they met, he said to her, she was a very intelligent, highly educated woman. He said to her, have you ever asked the Lord Jesus for forgiveness? and she became furious. And as women in the United Kingdom do, she picked up her purse and stomped out of the room. How dare you? How dare you speak to me about the need for forgiveness? Is an interesting thing, isn't it? We sometimes think that what brings conviction of sin is banging people on the heads by telling them they're wrong, 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 But you know, what will bring deep conviction of sin is saying to somebody, you know, the Lord Jesus will forgive you. How dare He? How dare He think I need forgiveness from Him? But you see, there is no other way. You can wash in all the rivers you please, but unless you are washed in the saving sacrificial blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never be clean. And I'm afraid to say that this great error is the error many good church people believe as they struggle their way through all they do in the church and for the church and outside of the church and underneath the church and around the church and with the people of the church in the hopes at the end they'll carry enough to the judgment seat of Christ for him to say, hmm, pass Mark. Those of you who know anything about the theology that was exploded at the time of the Reformation but pervades still in many Roman Catholic churches, the teaching is this, that you get grace in baptism, and as you work with that grace, eventually, yes, help by various sacraments, as you work with that grace, eventually, you experience a love for God that is without imperfection and a faith that is suffused with that love. And therefore, God may justify you because you are now justifiable. That's why so many Roman Catholics, and incidentally many others, there are many sects where you want to argue with their view about this or that. The thing to ask them is, do you enjoy assurance of salvation? Because the theology can't give them assurance of salvation. It can't. Yes, there may be people in those communities who have assurance of salvation, but they don't have it because of the teaching of their church. And it doesn't matter whether you're a sect or a Protestant or a Roman Catholic, we're awash with this kind of thing, aren't we? That perhaps at the end God will justify me because I'm justifiable. But God never justifies anybody who is justifiable. God only justifies sinners. The only people He justifies are sinners. That's why He gave His Son to die on the cross, because, my, how, do you think He would do that if there were some other way He could bring salvation to you? Do you? Am I so arrogant in my own self-importance that I would think God would send His beloved Son to die in shame and humiliation on the cross for me if He knew there was an easier way to save me? That's why Paul is so passionate, because he knows so many people who are stuck in this, I will work my way to heaven. And he's saying the only key that opens the door of heaven is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, is why the gospel is for everybody. You see, so long as it's the law way and the commandments and the way of Moses, it's only for one particular little group of people. But Paul points them back to the Old Testament Scriptures, and he says, "'Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether they are Jew or Gentile. The offer of the gospel is for all. It's not based on what I've done. It's not based on what I've accomplished. Nothing I have done, nothing I have accomplished can in any way qualify me for the gospel.'" nothing. Because he says the gospel is for all without distinction, the same Lord is Lord of all who believe. And don't let's bypass this amazing statement. He bestows His riches Lord, your righteousness is enough, but your riches, he bestows his riches on all those who call on him. That's why we are here this evening. We'll come to the Lord's Supper just in a moment. And because we believe in Christ and are saved, we know he's not saying to us, you're not doing very well. Pull your socks up. I'm ashamed of you. What kind of Christian do you think you are? Oh, yes, I feel that about myself. But he looks upon us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he says to the Holy Spirit, Give them more. Give them more. Give them more. Pour my riches into them, because he is. So will we ever get it. Because He has given His own Son for us, He will give us all things with Him. Well, I say we'll not return to this, I don't think, as we get through our eighteen months on Romans. I hope the way of salvation is crystal clear to you. And I emphasize this because I, I don't assume it is. And it's not lack of intelligence. I was a relatively intelligent little boy. That may be difficult to believe, but I, was a, I had a high IQ. I actually got a prize for handwriting, amazingly. But when I was a seven- or eight-year-old boy, I thought this was a very unjust world. I was in danger of living in Britain and becoming a Republican for this reason. Here was my reasoning. Now, I was a little boy at the time, so bear with me. I would say to myself, it is not fair that the queen is the queen. Now, my problem was not incipient socialism, that she was rich and I was poor. My problem was this, and I articulated it very clearly as a little boy. My problem was this. It's not a fair world because she has a better chance of getting to heaven than I have because she is surrounded by all these people who prevent her from sinning. And I used to think I was a difficult little boy and an awkward little boy. This is not fair. She has an unfair advantage before God. Now, what was my mistake? Was it being anti royalist? No, it was I didn't understand the gospel. That even the queen can't climb her way into acceptance before God, surrounded by men in grey suits. And by military warriors, the only way the Queen can get to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ, and the only way little I can get to heaven is by exactly the same way. One of our elect ladies gave me a a, a little sheet the other day, and I've I've searched this out. I've found this information in and more than one place. But let me tell you what it's all about. The the great Queen Victoria, you remember the woman who never smiled because, of course, in the nineteenth-century photographs took so long, nobody ever smiled in photographs in the nineteenth-century. They all looked as though they had pneumonia. But one day as she left St. Paul's Cathedral there in London with that great dome, she said to one of her chaplains, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And sadly, the chaplain responded that he didn't know any way in which one could be certain. And the court news published this conversation, and a man by the name of John Townsend, who was a little nobody-knows evangelist, saw the comments, and he began to pray for Queen Victoria, and he thought about writing to her, and he wrote to her as follows, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects. That's the kind of thing we British people say to our rulers. And then this, with trembling hand but heartfelt love, and because I know we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture, John 3 verse 16 and Romans 10, 9 and 10. These passages, wrote John Townsend, prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work, I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And John Townsend and his friends prayed for Queen Victoria, and some weeks later he received a a letter through the mail to John Townsend. Your letter of recent date I received, and in reply would state that I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed. Victoria. That is the way of salvation for queens, princes, kings, presidents, if they will come. So, listen not to that voice that we listen to by nature that says, do it yourself listen to the voice that says, child, I'm not asking you to do anything for the moment, but to open your mouth, and I will fill it, to open your heart, and I will flood it. We really couldn't have a better illustration of this point than what we are about to do What do you need to do to receive communion with Jesus Christ tonight? Are you trying to do something really hard? Trying to make your own way? Find your own acceptance? It is as simple as putting out your hand and taking this piece of bread putting it into your mouth. It is as simple as taking this little cup of wine and drinking it. The Word is near you, which is to say Jesus is near you. He couldn't be nearer to you than He is. And all you need to do is to call on the name of the Lord. And you know what? For some of us, that's probably the easiest thing in the world. And for others of us, it's possible. That's the one thing we can't do, and that itself should cause us to call. Jesus, have mercy on me. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this table, as we take this bread and this wine, that in such simple and graphic ways point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that Your Word will be very near to us in our mouths and in our hearts, and that without reservation And, O Lord, may it please you, without a single exception in this room, we may call on the name of the Lord and so be saved. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.